the month of June is the month of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. It is truly a glorious month in the liturgical calendar, a month supercharged with liturgical and sacramental graces and holy days of opportunity. Jesus is King. Happy Pentecost, everybody. Welcome to the One Peter Five podcast, rebuilding Christendom, restoring Catholic culture and tradition. I'm Timothy Flanders, editor in chief of One Peter Five, and I'm joined today by my friend and co worker in this struggle, Matthew Pleasy. Matthew, how you doing, brother? Happy Always Pentecost. good to be here, Timothy. Thanks for having me back. Always a pleasure. We've had, uh, we just started the series on the catechism crisis, which I'm really excited about on Monday. Uh, with you and Aaron Sang, both catechetical experts. And uh, it seemed like a lot of people were into that. So I'm excited to continue this conversation about the catechism. Good. Um, but Matthew has also written a book. Oh, you know, I don't have it within arm's reach, but it is the definitive guide to Catholic fasting and abstinence. So Matthew, tell us a little bit about the book that you wrote, why you chose to write it. Uh-huh. And uh, we'll get into our topic in just a minute. Yeah, so anybody who's followed my writings on a Catholic Life or 1 Peter 5 or a bunch of other platforms actually would know how much I really like preaching and talking about fasting. Fasting is really that uh, discipline in which we've entirely forgotten. We focus so much, rightfully so, in restoring the Mass, and even some people focus on restoring the Divine Office. So a few people talk about restoring the other great pillar that we need to form Catholic Life, and that's fasting. Fasting and absence, uh, you know, was characteristic of our forefathers. Like, you cannot find objective, true, traditional Catholicism without fasting. And the fasting, which I propose in this book, and of which we have the Telegram group to promote, is really based on what our forefathers did. And people would be very shocked to know that I basically propose fasting roughly one-third of the year and abstaining from me two-thirds of the year, because that's what our forefathers did. And why do we do it? How has that changed? what led to the crisis we're in right now um that you know the decline in fasting is really the untold story of what changed and that's what the book goes over yeah and and this is this is just normal life for so many people um and and part of it is just the fact that we live in this modern age is just a a life of abundance and indulgence Mm -hmm. and with no gratitude (laughs) Mm -hmm. so it's there's so much uh goodness to be had from fasting and that's why we founded this, uh, this lay sodality, founded and led by Matthew Pleasy. Uh, and we have our Telegram group, both in English and Spanish, I might add. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's part of our lay sodality, which I want to touch on in a minute. Um, but before we do, we'll get into our topic. Once again, we always need your support. One Peter Five is a nonprofit, so we count on your monthly donations, especially. So if you can just choose to be a monthly donor for One Peter Five, onepeter5.com/slash/donate. It helps us pay our bills, helps us to continue to produce everything here for free and to reach out to all souls for the sake of tradition. So I wanted to talk uh, in this in this conversation where we're talking about the month of June. This is part of a, an entire June campaign that uh, that we are doing at one Pier five that is in line with all the the central intentions of our three patrons. Uh, there's uh, two of them are you can actually see all of them right here. There's Saint, uh, I can't do this. <laughs> uh, Our Lady of Fatima under her Russian icon. And there's Blessed Emperor Carl right over here. 
And then over here is St. Maximilian Kolbe. Those are our three patrons at one pier five and they're really all connected. I want to speak to that in a minute, but before I do, um, Matthew, we were discussing before we went on the air, how great June is. And I was, I was contemplating this and writing my article this morning. I was thinking, wow, it's, it's so funny to me how supercharged this month is spiritually, liturgically, uh, in the particular feasts that are in this month, particular practices and the particular opportunities for fasting and, and penances and reparation that are already built into this month, that it seems to be perfectly suited to not only fight against the abuse of June in the so-called Pride Month, but also to convert these poor souls and truly touch them with the sacred heart of Jesus to convert them and, and help them to get to heaven just like all of us. So any thoughts on the month of June, liturgically speaking, what makes June so great, Matthew? Yeah. You know, if the thing is, I feel like most people are now getting into the, you know, the mindset of it's, you know, nothing's going to happen now until Advent. You know, we just finished Pentecost, but we're still in the octave, but very soon Pentecost will be over. And then you go into season after Pentecost. And then it feels like at a glance, it's a long stretch of nothing. A lot of green Sundays for a long time. Maybe you got All Saints Day, you know, you, you have Assumption Day. Other than that, not a whole lot going on. But when you step back and when you really look at it into a pre-1955 calendar, you really see how rich the month is. We have Corpus Christi coming up with its own octave. And then remember the octave day, really, the day after that is the Feast of the Sacred Heart. And our Lord himself asked for that feast, referring to the octave of Corpus Christi to establish it afterwards. And then Sacred Heart had it had its own uh, customs associated with it. I'm going to have the article coming out on 1 Peter 5 later this month going over the forgotten customs of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. It's feast day. And of course, the whole month is dedicated to the Sacred Heart. We should be praying the litany of the Sacred Heart. There's indulgences attached to it. But then we have a traditional octave with that. And if you look at the calendar, it's really running up then into uh, the Nativity of John the Baptist, which he had his own octave, also pre-55. And beforehand, you had the Vigil of the Nativity, which is a wonderful day. I still remember I was in Spain one year on this day. And oh wow! next day is a holiday, a public holiday still there. And you, if you're familiar with the customs of uh, that, and you know, we had an article on 1 Peter 5 before on John the Baptist customs, that's the night you would have bonfires. Right. The longest night in the year, you would burn your sacramentals. People were celebrating all night on the beach, you know, with bonfires and celebrations. So there's just so much going on this month. And then you have, you know, the what we're going to talk about today, Saints Peter and Paul at the very end of the month. So it's not a boring month. If you really look at it and you really celebrate it liturgically, there's a lot of octaves, but there's also a lot of fasting opportunities. So a lot of people go get caught up in the fact of it's an octave. It must be a celebration. It's not a time for penance. That is not true. So we can talk more about that. But just looking at June, there's a lot of great feast days and still fasting opportunities this month. Yeah, I love the St. John bonfire with the kids because we uh, w what we do is we save our Christmas tree. We put our Christmas tree under our deck and then mm -hmm. it just sits there and dries off. And then we have this ritual burning of the Christmas tree at the St. John bonfire because it's mm. six months to Christmas. And it's all about how the light is getting lesser and lesser, right? Darker and darker, um, and because Saint John said he must become greater, I must become lesser. Right. It's just a wonderful, wonderful little tie-in, and and also a fight against the pagan summer solstice too, because this is the opposite mm -hmm. of that. So, and and then the whole thing ends with 
there's uh St. Peter and Paul and there's the commemoration of St. Paul and then there's the first vespers of uh the precious blood. It's like Yeah, the, yeah. we did a we did an article in the past of, too on customs right, for the precious right. blood that people can can refer yeah. back to. But there's so many different things you can live out the faith, you know. Even though it's summer and you think like there's not a lot going on until another main liturgical season. June is so rich if you just step back and look at it. Absolutely. So I want to speak a little bit about our patrons and then our lay sedalias at 1 Peter 5. What what motivates us to spend so much time celebrating June spiritually, theologically, uh, sacramentally, and um, just liturgically? Um, and this is, of course, the, the Russian icon of Our Lady of Fatima. And this is going to we're working. We've been working to make this available for purchase in Western Europe and the Americas. And stay tuned for that. We're almost there. We've got an investor and we've we're, it's going to be on a website. We'll have this available. Um, so we'll be working on that. It's it's coming soon. But I wanted to just write read this. This is from the initial call of uh, His Excellency Bishop Schneider for the Crusade of Eucharistic Reparation way back in 2020 during the COVID tyranny and crisis. And he points out something that really kind of has just not really been emphasized by the the uh, the message of Fatima. Uh, it's a part of the message of Fatima that, that has, there's been a lot of great work on, you know, consecration of Russia, First Saturdays, a lot of people emphasizing a lot of those things. And those are all critical, obviously. But there's an interesting piece about Fatima that we at 1 Peter 5, we feel that this is kind of our role in the trad movement to emphasize this part of Fatima. Um, and this is what His Excellency Bishop Schneider mentions in his original call for this crusade. He mentions the fact that when the, when the Fatima message actually begins, it actually begins with the angel of Fatima, the guardian angel of Fatima in 1916, before Our Lady even gets there to appear. And this is what is recorded in um, Fatima and Lucia's own words, Sister Lucia's memoirs. This is page 172 of that text, which is what Schneider quotes. And it says this, Sister Lucia is remembering this, quote, While we were there, the angel appeared to us for the third time, holding a chalice in his hands, with a host above it from which some drops of blood were falling into the sacred vessel. Leaving the chalice and the host suspended in the air, the angel prostrated himself on the ground and repeated this prayer three times, Most Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then rising, he once more took the chalice and the host in his hands, he gave the host to me and to Jacinta and Francisco. He gave the contents of the chalice to drink, saying, as he said, did so, take and drink the body and blood of Jesus Christ, horribly outraged by ungrateful men, repair their crimes and console your God. So there is an interesting thing about Fatima is that sort of the whole message of Fatima is sort of prefaced by this Eucharistic reparation theme. And it's quite telling the fact that Obviously, as trads, we fight against a lot of different liturgical abuses that were that happened since the Second Vatican Council, since the Novus Ordo. But it's quite telling that the Angel of Fatima is actually talking about that happening in 1916. So we have serious mm -hmm. problems already, decades before there's any liturgical per se issue. We have a problem in the hearts of the faithful is that mm -hmm. they are receiving or, or disrespecting the Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, which is seen by God, even though it's not seen by men. Mm -hmm. And so this is what we promote in our crusade of Eucharistic Reparation Sodality. 
Um, so this is the really the central the central work here at 1 Peter 5 is motivated by this, this crusade. You can go to you can join us by 1peter5.com slash crusade. And this is the this is the page here, and it, it shows all the requirements. The requirements are very minimal. Bishop Schneider only asked that uh, everyone commit to one month, every sorry, every month one hour of Eucharistic adoration in reparation. That's the minimum. It's a very small commitment. And to pray this prayer that he wrote, which includes one of the Fatima prayers, namely, my God, I believe, I adore, I trust, and I love you. I ask pardon for those who do not believe, do not adore, do not trust, do not love you. And, and then we've added all these other additional optional requirements. Uh, sorry, they're optional additional things that you can do. Um, and the, the goal is to establish uh, regular reparation to the Blessed Sacrament in every parish and in every diocese, especially tied in with the octave of Corpus Christi you just mentioned, Matthew, mm -hmm. is he, he wants a, a day of reparation for crimes against the most holy sacrament in each diocese as the octave day of Corpus Christi. So this would be the final day of the octave as a public reparation day in every diocese right before the Sacred Heart, which also includes reparation in the collect for that feast. So that is the goal. And then tied right with that is the sodality that we, we already mentioned, of course, the Fellowship of St. Nicholas. This is our other lay sodality of fasting. And we're going to talk about in just a minute the fact that mm -hmm. the Apostles' Fast is connected with the month of June. So this is all sort of flows right together in the month of June as this sort of holy moment in a particular time when the Blessed Sacrament is not only being abused but it is being used for the most despicable and filthy crimes that cry to heaven in this month. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's like kind of gotten to perhaps, I mean, if we think about the crimes that cry to heaven and the fact that God sends fire against those, and that's why they're called crimes that cry to heaven. It's kind of like the final step before, you know, the final wrath of God to destroy us. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like, it's like the abuses of the of the Eucharist have gotten worse and worse and worse. And now they're actually even using, I mean, I saw a um, Eric Salmon's, what was it? It was, it was some kind of Corpus Christi pride mass. I mean, can you imagine a more sinister and demonic public profanation? I mean, the, the, uh, the, the, those, those black masses are one thing because they're Satanists stealing the blessed sacrament and doing this, but this is kind of a, almost even worse because it's happening in a Catholic church by a priest in good standing, quote unquote, mm -hmm. with the tacit approval of the bishop. I mean, wow. I mean, how, how incredible, how incredibly outrageous is that to our Eucharistic Lord? So any comments before we talk about the uh, apostles fast, Matthew? Yeah, a couple of things. So I've been privileged now for, I think over four years to write for the Fatima Center. So obviously the message of Our Lady of Fatima and, and the work that you're doing is great, really in line with the work that, you know, I help them and I, you know, am very happy to support them with. Um, I've been writing an article on their website on different apologetic themes. Uh, fasting comes up often, but, but many different things of the faith now weekly for about the past four years. And there was an article I wrote that really tied in a little bit of what you just said some time ago. I forget when I wrote it. But it basically talked about the changes St. Pius X made to frequent Holy Communion. So if you're familiar, before his time, um, you know, Holy Communion was not received very often. In fact, it was 
definitely not receive daily. In fact, some people almost had a bit of a Jansenist mindset of you're never worthy to go to Holy Communion. In fact, that's one of the reasons in the Middle Ages, the church developed the precept of you must receive our Lord in the Holy Eucharist once during the Easter season. So people would go their whole life really without saving because they wouldn't find themselves worthy. Mm -hmm. So that that's a problem too. But, yeah. um, you know, when we go to the time of St. Pius X, he really opens it so that way everybody who's disposed can go to Holy Communion. But what people don't talk about and what I mentioned in that article was that he asked there would be so many different dispositions, not only free from mortal sin, which everybody watching this should know. You cannot receive Holy Communion mortal sin. You can't say, I'll just make a perfect act of contrition in the pew and go up. You cannot do that. You don't know if you've made one. You must receive sacramental absolution. So... Uh, but he had more to say than just that. There were different dispositions one should have if one wanted to approach the holy altar more frequently, even daily, you know, free even from venial sin and the right dispositions. And there's so many people who receive our Lord out of habit. And I believe they probably very soon after he opened this started to do so. If you think about that, the angel of Adam appeared in 1916, only a few years after he opened even daily communion to really anybody. Um, so I feel like while he did so, obviously, with a good intention to encourage more people to receive the Holy Eucharist, many people then took it out of habit. And we see it today. Of course, this is long before we had altar torn out. We had communion in the hand. We had the sacrileges and the profanations we see now. So if you do go to uh, mass daily, uh, of course, you're going weekly. But if you go daily, really make sure you're making time for adequate thanksgiving afterwards. He really emphasized if you're going to receive Holy Communion, you must have time for thanksgiving. You must have time for preparation. In fact, there were some saints who counseled, not as a matter of precept, but there would be a fast actually after things, after Holy Communion, to not eat anything else for a while, to really spend time in thanksgiving. And of course, there's the mandatory Eucharistic fast beforehand, which has been so watered down really since the 50s. But much can be said to, if you're receiving our Lord, even in the state of grace, are you following the right dispositions? Because I do believe that helped, uh, that really brought about the angel Fatima coming. Um, that was probably one of the crimes which people were doing and receiving our Lord out of habit, that lukewarmness that our Lord said he vomits out. So we definitely have to combat that. So maybe we'll keep that in mind. Next time you receive our Lord in Holy Communion, next time you're fasting, offer up some uh, prayers for that intention so people actually are making time to receive him worthily. That's great. Thank you for that exhortation. Uh, great to go back and read that decree of Pius X and to see the real standards that he's trying to set here, even though with a good intention, obviously, with the, the poison of Jansenism. Mm -hmm. um that's that's excellent i think i'll go back and read that um so let's talk about the apostles fast now i one of the i mean as a former eastern orthodox i learned about all these different fasts but when i read your book matthew i i learned a ton of stuff in your book and i did not know that the apostles fast was actually practiced in the west so first of mm -hmm. all let, let me let me ask can you break down some of the basics of what the apostles fast is? Where, where does it go or what, what yep. what's the time frame here? And then I can bring up uh, St. Leo as well. Yeah. So the apostles fast is really, well, St. Jerome at his time, he referred to it as summer Lent. 
Um, it was not practiced with the same strictness that you would call Lent, but um, you know, some people refer to other Lents. That is a term. You know, there's a there's the Advent Lent. There's the the fast before Christmas. There's obviously Great Lent, which is the the, the Lent you would know before Easter. Uh, there's um, Assumption Lent, which we would call the Assumption Fast in August, which which we talked about before. But in in June we have Summer Lent, the Apostles Fast. So this this period actually goes back to Saint Leo the Great. Saint Leo the Great referenced it in one of his works uh, back in the year 461. So this is from the sermon that that he gave on the Whitsun Fast. So this is not something you know we're making up today. This is not something new. This long predates the schism with the East. Uh, St. Leo the Great is referring to a solemn fast where he says, today's festival, and he's referring to Pentecost, hallowed by the descent of the Holy Ghost, is followed, as you know, by a solemn fast, which being a salutary institution for the healing of soul and body, we must keep with devout observance. And then he goes on to talk more at length. So you can, you know, read this. This is, um, uh, what is it, Sermon uh, 78, I believe? Yeah. Yeah, 78. 78. And he goes on and talks about that. Of course, we also have the Ember Days, too, at this time of year. So, you know, the Ember Days are occurring during the Octave of Pentecost. Uh, the Octave of Pentecost actually was was not, um, you know, practiced in the very early church. You know, uh, if you, we uh, look at the article that I wrote uh, for, um, for 1 Peter 5 before, it actually talks about in the very early centuries, just Pentecost Sunday itself was celebrated in the Western Church. By the 7th century, the whole week began a time of festive observance, uh, so much so that they did not allow servile work. Um, law courts did not sit. Really, the whole week was a week of um, a holy day of obligation, really, the whole week. Uh, and now by uh, 1094, the Council of Constance limited the prohibition to three days. So we probably talked about before, if you read my articles, Pentecost Monday and Tuesday and Pentecost Sunday were holy days of obligation. And then you would have the Ember days immediately afterwards. Now us Roman Catholics, you know, traditional Catholics should be familiar with that. We have the Ember days this week. And some people are really surprised to see why are we fasting and abstaining during, you know, the very last days of, you know, the Paschal season, because we still play, we're still uh, praying uh, the Regina Chaley. We're not switching back to the Angelus until after uh, known of this coming Saturday, Ember Saturday. Right. Um, so there's there's still going to be that. We're still in the Paschal season. But the church in her mindset really emphasizes how this is a joyful fast. This is not one. So the notion that fasting has to be sorrowful. Remember, our Lord told the apostles, you know, to not look sorrowful like the hypocrites. You can fast with joy. So after just, uh, you know, St. Leo talks about this, you can read that sermon for more information. But the apostles, after receiving the Holy Ghost and being inspired, you know, had this fast before they went out and preached and continued that mission that our, that our Lord sent them to do. And of course, obviously, they were very successful in that. So us as Roman Catholics, we keep that. We keep the Ember Days. But the only real vestige of the old Apostles Fast that used to be kept for a long time is the Vigil of St. Peter and Paul. So we can talk about that in a, in a few more minutes. But holistically, then, what is the Apostles Fast? Well, thankfully, some Eastern Catholics do still keep that. And um, it does vary a little bit. For instance, the traditional Byzantine Fast during this time um, refers to it lasting anywhere from nine to 42 days. And of course, that depends on the date of Easter. So mm -hmm. there's obviously going to be different amount of dates between this time of Pentecost 
and uh, between uh, you know the feast of Saints Peter and Paul on June 29th. So that's why it could be anywhere from, from nine days to 42 days. Traditionally, it begins on the first Monday after Pentecost until the feast of Saints Peter and Paul. So after the octave finished, because the octave is really just an entire celebration of Pentecost, that Monday afterwards, which we would call the Monday after Trinity Sunday, would be the day in which this fast would begin. Now, in the East, they have different rules for different fasts. You know, some allowed oil, some allowed fish, some didn't. So for those familiar with the Eastern tradition, this, uh, this Lent, this Apostles' Fast, this Summer Lent, has the same rules as Great Lent, but oil and fish are allowed in some places, except not on Wednesdays and Fridays. Um, there is, though, just to, just to note, a little bit of divergence even in the Eastern churches. For instance, the Coptic and the Old Syrian traditions keep the fast still on that first Monday after Pentecost, as I mentioned in the traditional Byzantine fast. But the current Byzantine tradition, if you'll look that up, they'll actually refer to it beginning on the second Monday after Pentecost. So the first Monday, it begins on the day after their All Saints Sunday. So okay. even even in the East, there might be some difference. The Orthodox are still going to be uh, ones who, you know, probably mention this fast much more than Catholics do. Of course, not everybody who's Orthodox keeps this. Sometimes it's just monks keeping, you know, these different fasts and the ordinary people don't. So it fell out of practice for Roman Catholics a very long time ago. Even though St. Leo talks about it, it goes back, like I said, to the year 461. It really fell out of observance early on. And we just kind of kept that... Uh, that vestige of it with the Ember Days and then the Vigil of Pentecost, uh, the Vigil of Saints Peter and Paul. Now there are other days in June too. We have uh, the Vigil of the Nativity of John the Baptist, which is going to be on uh, June 23rd. That is a day we can and should keep as a day of fasting and abstinence, as well as Corpus Christi's Vigil too. So people might be initially surprised when you're talking about a Vigil of Corpus Christi. I have my traditional missal. I have my you know pre-55 missal. I don't see a Vigil of of Corpus Christi. Um, and that would be true. There, there is not a liturgical vigil of Corpus Christi, but I'm talking about vigil in the sense of the day before Corpus Christi. And the church has referred to this before. If you pick up an old copy, you know, of the Recolta in there, there's a different indulgences attached to fasting and other disciplines connected with the vigil of Corpus Christi. So, for instance, this goes back to Pope Urban IV and this, uh, which is around the year 1429. Uh, it was confirmed as well by uh, Pope Eugenius IV in 1433, where he um, he confirmed these indulgences. Martin V had also indulgences associated with Corpus Christi. But the one I wanted to highlight is in the Recolta, it said there was an indulgence of 200 days on the vigil of the Feast of Corpus Christi to all who being truly contrite and having confessed shall fast or do some other good work and join them by their confessor. So this this also is occurring during this you know ancient period of the apostles fast. Excellent, that, that, that's wonderful. I learned so much in what you just said. Thank you so much, um, Matthew. That's excellent. Um, and I, I wanted to emphasize something that I thought about today on Pentecost Thursday um, was the way it was originally taught to me in the East about some of the some of the aspects of the apostles fast was that it was connected to at least in at least in terms of its meaning um as you say a joyful fast is uh, uh acts chapter 13 verse 3 then they the apostles fasting and praying ministering to the lord the holy ghost said to them separate me saul and barnabas 
for the work wherein I have I have taken them. And they, fasting, imposed their hands upon them and sent them away. So they, being sent by the Holy Ghost, went into Seleucia and Paul and Barnabas going off in an apostolic mm-hmm. journey. So we see the apostles fasting and liturgizing. The Greek is actually liturgizing. They're liturgizing mm. and they're fasting. And that's when the Holy Spirit speaks to them to direct them where they're going. And then as they're sending them out, they also are fasting. Mm-hmm. And so this is this is quite a joyful fast because we have the you know the entire Pentecost journey that begins in Acts chapter 2 all the way to Acts chapter 13 all of this great joy of the gospel which is which is being spread everywhere through miraculous wonders like speaking in other languages mm-hmm. and uh the fasting is connected with this being sent and that's that's very very much uh a propos to the gospel today which is uh, at that time Jesus calling together the 12 apostles gave them power over devils etc etc so they sent he's sending them out the 72 and going out they went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere so uh, it's it's very amazing that um we have this apostles fast and then the wednesday reading in uh, ember wednesday is about the blessed sacrament mm-hmm. and and so we we see the connection between all of these things because that's heading towards corpus christi next week so it's this apostolic fast of joy where we are discerning and seeking the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, the counsel of the Holy Spirit, the gift of counsel, supernatural prudence to direct our way sort of in this next season of after Pentecost of the green season, the green investment season of after Pentecost. So we are to go out and do our apostolic work now. So mm-hmm. I, I really love that as this sort of joyful fast to seek the will of the Lord and be sent out. Right, right. And and St. Leo talks about it. He refers to they fasted after, not only did they prepare in the days leading up to the Holy Ghost coming upon them in Pentecost, they fasted afterwards, but as they continue to go out, remember our Lord taught them some demons can only be driven out by prayer and fasting because they tried to pray and our Lord gave them power and they tried to cast out demons. They were ineffective. And remember our Lord, when he was still on earth said, some demons can only be driven out by prayer and fasting. So we see in their own life how they took that to heart. They they incorporated prayer and fasting. That underscored Christianity for centuries. I mean, obviously the book that you know that I wrote, the definitive guide to Catholic fasting and absence, talks at length on Wednesday and Friday fasting, how it was foundational really for centuries, and how even Saturdays for a very long time, and over time how that changed, you know. And, uh, you know, Wednesdays, I think it was around the 10th or so century, they were, you know, virtually dropped. But Fridays, the vestige of that remains today with Friday abstinence year round. But early on, it was fasting and abstinence. You know, we've lost so much from the faith that the apostles taught us. You know, it's believed that the Ember Days, St. Leo mentions this, and it can't be proven, but um, it, it is highly likely that the Ember Days went back to the apostles. We know as well that uh, many of the old catechisms and, and many t- uh, teachers as well who are traditional cite the apostles are the ones who began the Lenten fast. And I talk about that at length in the book as well. So they incorporated some of these fasts in addition to weekly fasting. So fasting underscored their life. You, um, you really can't be one who claims to be Christian at all and scorn fasting. You know, like a lot of Protestants don't fast at all. That That's simply not recognizable to the early church. They claim to want to, you know, follow Martin Luther and these so-called reformers to take the church back to its primitive origin. Well, primitively, you fasted much more and they, and they don't have any of that. You know, they, they, they scorn that. But fasting underscored us. And, and fasting stayed for a very long time. I think it's important to mention the vigil of Saints Peter and Paul. 
So, you know, that's a vigil. If you look in your missal, you'll find, uh, you know, the vigil of Saints Peter and Paul. Unlike Corpus Christi, it is a liturgical vigil. Um, it is the day on um, June 28th. It's immediately, therefore, before the feast day on June 29th. What many people don't know about, and I, and I mentioned this in my book and in articles too, because I want people to, uh, you know, spend time, you know, really observing liturgical year, even though you don't, you know, have to. And what most people don't realize is St. Peter and Paul was a holy day of obligation in America for a very long time. You know, so uh, if you go to Rome now, you'll be going to Mass on St. Peter and Paul. I believe it's still a holy day of obligation there. But in America, it was a holy day of obligation until 1840. So it was dropped in 1840 uh, when, um, so Pope Gregory the 16th in 1837, he dispensed uh, the dioceses then, which comprised the modern day United States from uh, Easter Monday and Pentecost Monday. Uh, actually, Pentecost Monday was still a holy day of obligation then for us in America. He dispensed from that. And in 1840, he, he then dispensed from Saints Peter and Paul. Um, two years later, for sure, the vigil of Saints Peter and Paul ceased being a fasting day in America. Beforehand, that was also an obligatory day of fast and absence. But even with those changes in America, some other places kept them as well. For instance, if you look at the Catholic Encyclopedia online, it will mention that Great Britain, Ireland, Australia, Canada, all kept the vigil of Saints Peter and Paul as a fasting day and a day of absence for much longer. Um, you know, I even found a newspaper article from 1902 where it talks about uh, Catholics in the uh, United Kingdom asked for and received a special dispensation from the Holy Father because they wanted to um, be dispensed from the fasting on the vigil of Saints Peter and Paul because that was the day that King uh, Edward VII was to be crowned, and he granted them a dispensation from fasting that day. So that's a historical record of we know for sure there was fasting. Of course, that's not that long ago, but that's just an interesting piece of history. People took the, the faith seriously enough that they asked for a dispensation from that day. And in fact, it remained a mandatory day of, of fasting and absence in those places and in some other places as well until it was ultimately abolished, uh, you know, in 1917 with the new code of canon law. Wow. <laughs> that, that's that's a fascinating uh, uh, further... Um... It's just um, that's a further uh, comment of the traditional stance of the Holy See to the Protestant monarchy in England, even though it's been quite tenuous for many centuries. But uh, it's, it's an interesting and unique and weird relationship that the Holy See has had with that monarchy. Um, mm -hmm. So but final to, to close thing out, I just want to emphasize it. Uh, so let me get your final thoughts here, please. Um, that we've we've structured this lay sodality in three tiers there's tier one is the base requirement so to be a part mm -hmm. of this whole sodality is to do it's above the bare minimum that we're currently obliged to do um but it is not quite all the way um there is a tier two option and a tier three option and the apostles fast is in the tier three option and mm -hmm. but what we want to emphasize here is that None of this stuff is obligatory right. it, under a pain of mortal sin or even venial sin. This is a free uh, opportunity that we are giving people that, because we want to help each other. It's so much easier to fast when we all fast together. Mm -hmm. and, and the fact that there's these tears that allows pious souls to take on more privately, because as our Lord says, we're not trying to uh, say that we're something great just because we're fasting, but we are trying yeah. to 
help each other to fast. And that's that's a very, very traditional thing to do. It's so difficult now to fast in these days because we are only really required to fast twice a year. Uh, and so it's almost impossible to have a corporate fasting penitential thing unless we all commit to it together. So mm-hmm. something to emphasize is that the apostles fast is these are holy days of opportunity. They're not they're not required. They're, even if you commit to them, even if you join this lay sodality and you commit to it and you say, I'm going to do tier three, I'm going to do the whole apostles mm-hmm. fast. And then you just fail because you've never fasted. Or, that's fine. Like you need mm-hmm. to try. You need to try your hardest. Try and trying and failing is much better than just doing nothing in the month of right. June, especially what, what goes on in the month of June. And so, you could have been in tier one or two for Lent and be like, well, I'd never wanted necessarily go to tier three. That doesn't mean you can't join the apostles fast. There's no like switching tiers. You know, this is all just guidelines to help you. I don't want people getting hung up and oh, I signed up for tier one. I thought, so this is not for me. That's not true. And I don't want people getting hung up with, you know, should I, how should I fast this day? Is this a fasting day or not? Remember, this is not really practiced for a long time in the Western church under obligation. So for instance, this was a fast that long preceded Corpus Christi or the Feast of the Sacred Heart. So some people might be like, what should we do now? Well, I would, I would counsel, it would, it would make sense not to fast then on Corpus Christi or the Sacred Heart. You know, you certainly don't have to, you know, you don't have to ask permission from the group. We're here to support you. If you want to fast in those days, you can, if, if you don't want to, that that makes sense as well. We're trying to appropriate the wisdom, you know, of the early church that St. Leo had and apply that to our current uh, crisis in our current world. You know, you might want to also just say, you know, I don't know if I can fast all June. I got a lot of barbecues this month and other things. Well, you know, every Friday is a day of abstinence. So that's already a given. Maybe then you can have Wednesdays and Saturdays, you know, for instance, or maybe you're like, well, uh, you know, I can fast on Fridays and then I'll just do the Wednesday and Saturday absence. So I'll add a little bit of fasting, a little bit of extra absence. You can adopt it. You know, don't get hung up. I know did I did I sin this day because it was June 13th. It was a Tuesday and I didn't fast. That is right. not not the mindset. You're doing it wrong at that point, you know, and um, took, you know, one of my last comments. I just want to say a few words that Dom Jay wrote about this fast where he said, quote, let us then recollect ourselves preparing our hearts in union with Holy Church by faithfully observing this vigil when the obligation of thus keeping up certain days of preparation previous to the festivals is strictly maintained by a people, it is a sign that faith is still living amongst them. So he's referring to the vigil of Saints Peter and Paul. He re- He's referring to uh, how over time the all these fasts in, in June and, and even the fast in this day is being eliminated in countries too. But it's a sign of faith that's still living amongst them when people come together and joyfully pick up the fast and celebrate it. So even if you can't do all of the apostles fast, like, you know, the Eastern church is doing, add some extra days, you know, definitely um, fast on uh, the vigil of Saints Peter and Paul, on the, the vigil of the nativity and, and Corpus Christi, I would add too, um, especially for Eucharistic preparation. Adapt it, see what you can do as your family, but make it an intention, do it for this crusade. You know, we have it in our power to really do what we can to save souls. You know, we can offer this up in the state of grace. And that's in that sense, we can really make a difference. So let's make a difference this June. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's 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 do this. So I'm excited for June, Matthew. I I'm, I just appreciate your excitement. And I, I think as Catholics, this is this should be our response to public sin, is that uh, we want to zealously off, offer reparation to God 
so that sinners may be converted is that we it should grieve our souls that almighty god is offended that his majesty is uh is attacked and we should ask reparation and pardon for these sinners mm-hmm. that we shouldn't we shouldn't you know it's easy to get angry in this month about all the the sin that gets celebrated in this month it's easy to get angry at the evil and even angry at these people but that's just not a catholic attitude we need to have the attitude of sorrow for sin and a zeal for saving these souls uh-huh. and for for offering this reparation so just like christ you yeah, know we had exactly. the holy ghost as well we have the holy ghost at pentecost you know if we really took that to heart wouldn't we feel called to do more to go out there and do more than the minimum to save souls especially when when you know greek schismatics are observing this fast when when people are misusing the month of june just sitting at home doing nothing and letting time pass by that does not seem the mindset a traditional Catholic needs to have today. We are called to to reparation. We're called to war, and we do that uh, by penance. You know, our Lord said, "The kingdom of heaven is won by violence, and the violent bear it away." And the violence he was referring to was the violence we do ourselves in penance. There we go. Well, let's let's offer up a hail mary and uh, invoke our three patrons. Um, I want to mention the fact that Blessed Emperor Carl he gave his life in reparation. And in in penance for he died at a very young age and he died a heroic death, which he offered up in a very Christ like fashion for the sake of his own people that had that had betrayed him. Many of them, these elites in in the Austrian Empire. And so that is the that's the foundation of his own lay sodality, which which is the Gebetz Liga, the uh, League of Prayer and Reparation of Blessed Emperor Karl. Um, and in, in the same, very much the same spirit, we have St. Maximilian Kolbe and his sodality, the, the Milicia Immaculata, when he saw the public sin in 1917, the same time that Fatima was happening, he saw the satanic processions. So very much like what we're dealing with in June, St. Maximilian Kolbe saw satanic processions in St. Peter's square. They said that Satan must rule in the Vatican. The Pope will be his slave. So we need to have exact same response to pride parades that we see today as St. Maximilian Kolbe, which is what what he did was he said, we immediately need to fight the fallen angels by means of consecrating herself to Our Lady. And then he added the prayer, uh, Mary, conceive without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee and those who have no recourse to thee, especially the Freemasons. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's interceding immediately for them with Our Lady that she may save their souls. And that's his, his truly militant and Marian spirit. So th- these are the, the same, this is the spirit of, of uh, our apostolate that we hope by their prayers to take up in our own time. So let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. Blessed Emperor Carl, pray for us. Saint Maximilian Kolbe, pray for us. Mary conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee, those who have no recourse to thee, especially the Freemasons. My God, I believe, I adore, I trust, and I love you. I ask pardon for those who do not believe, do not adore, do not trust, do not love you. In the name of the Amen. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.